I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about judicial nominations with a senior Senate staffer, blue slips, and the retirement of Judge Janice Rogers Brown. Although the justices are on their summer break right now, they issued an order in the travel ban case out of Hawaii. The Supreme Court left in place the, tra- uh, the Hawaii District Court's order uh, ruling that that will allow grandparents and other close relatives of people in the U.S. to enter the country, but it will allow the government to implement restrictions on refugees. A bit of a split the baby uh, ruling uh, at this point. The court has scheduled oral argument in, uh, for the case uh, in October, early October, October 10th. So we have some new nominations and new confirmations to report on. Um, just this afternoon, the Senate confirmed John Bush to the Sixth Circuit. Um, he had gotten into a little bit of hot water over some of his anonymous blogging, um, but he nonetheless got through. Um, the Senate has also confirmed David Nye to the District Court in Idaho, and they're gearing up to confirm several others. Um And these include Kevin Newsom to the 11th Circuit and our friend from the Pacific Legal Foundation, Damian Schiff, to the Court of Federal Claims. He also got into some some trouble um, for referring to Justice Kennedy in a blog as a, quote, judicial prostitute. Um, But we nonetheless think he is going to um, get through. So the president has also announced his intent to nominate several other individuals uh, to district courts in Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Oklahoma. These states each have two Republican senators, so they shouldn't run into too much trouble, um, unlike some others, which we're going to talk about later on. So we're pleased to have with us today Tom Jipping. He's the chief counsel for Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah, and uh, who sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Tom has been around for his fair share of confirmation battles, both at the Supreme Court and the lower court. So thanks for joining us today. So you've done a lot of research looking at Senate confirmation of judges over the years. How would you say the pace of confirmation for Trump's nominees is comparing to recent presidents? Well, it is early. Today is exactly six months since he took the oath of office. So it's uh, things are just starting to gear up. But when you look at the different stages of the process in terms of the number of nominations, the number of nominees who have been given hearings, the number of nominees confirmed uh, at this point, uh, it's it's pretty favorable compared to previous presidents. The, the president has nominated 27 individuals, seven I've gotten hearings, four have been confirmed. Um, and that uh, that pretty that compares pretty favorably with previous presidents, at least at this point. Um, so there were about 130 vacancies on the federal courts uh, when President Trump took office. Is it typical for presidents to leave so many vacancies open at the end of their administration? That That is a high number, a high total. It was about 15 percent of the federal judiciary. Um, when Bill Clinton took office, it was about the same, but other presidents, it was quite a bit lower. Uh, the Republican Senate during the 114th Congress during the last two years uh, kept confirmations at a very low point. And so uh, th- that's the main reason why there are so many vacancies at the beginning of this administration. Uh, that is that is a high number. Um, at the same time, I think when we talk about judicial vacancies, uh, we, we most often ignore or, or just forget to mention that uh, a lot of judges who have taken what we call senior status, that is uh, kind of a semi-retirement, they, they have a, at least a half caseload usually, uh, there are hundreds of those judges who are still in the courtroom and still helping out. So it's not like uh, a vacancy means there's literally no judge uh, available to do that work. 
So can you explain for our listeners why they should care about there being numerous vacancies in a backlog of nominees? Well, I I think we have to remember in the entire conversation about judicial appointments, every single aspect of it, um, it, it, this is about a, a battle between two different views of what judges are supposed to do in our system of government. I mean, every issue related to judicial appointments, nominations, confirmations, filibusters, vacancies, it all relates to that. And so on the one hand, a high number of vacancies uh, does have a practical effect in that uh, some jurisdictions, of course, have a lot more vacancies than others. Um, but jurisdictions that have a lot of vacancies um, have a tougher time doing the work that courts need to do. At the same time, um, and and the issue of, of judges and the kind of judges that we ought to have in this country was a significant issue in the last election. The fact that there are a lot of vacancies means that there is a significant opportunity to um, now that with President Trump, as opposed to Hillary Clinton in the White House, a a significant opportunity to appoint the right kind of judge. Those vacancies are going to be filled with one of these two kind of judges. And um, the the kind of judge that is appointed has a lot to do with the kind of kind of freedom that we enjoy, whether the people can really, um, and their elected representatives make decisions about important policy issues. Uh, so on the one hand, it, it, you know, it, it, it is a practical issue in some jurisdictions more than others. On the other hand, I think it's a great opportunity. So in, in questions to the nominees during their hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, the Democratic senators uh, have focused on extracting the nominees' personal views um, as opposed to legal views about controversial issues. Is that normal? Well, it's, uh, it's become normal, but it is very dangerous. Um, I just mentioned that this is a this is a competition between two different kinds of judges. Well, you can tell the kind of judge that a senator wants to see appointed based on the questions that senator asks during a confirmation hearing. If I am a senator and and you're uh, a judicial nominee, which I think would be a great idea, just Thank for the you. record. Um, <laughs> uh, and if I if I wanted to know what your views on on issues one, two, or three are, it must mean that I that to me your personal views are relevant to the job you're going to do as a judge. Well, that that is a, that is a radical view of what judges are supposed to do to base their decisions on their personal views, and that's true whether it's a conservative or a liberal nominee. So it's a very dangerous thing because it reflects uh, a very politicized, very subjective, uh, uh, very partial as opposed to impartial kind of judge. And unfortunately, it is popular today to, uh, to, to think about the judiciary in those kind of political terms. So some of the Democrats have been asking nominees about so-called super precedent. So this is the idea that some decisions of the Supreme Court are set in stone and they can't be changed, such as Roe v. Wade. What's your take on super precedent and are there any super duper precedents? <laughs> well, uh, the, the, first, the first senator to raise that was a Republican, uh, Arlen Specter, when he chaired the Judiciary Committee for the, for the uh, confirmation of Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. And he had a list of uh, talking about Roe versus Wade, he had a list of 38 Supreme Court decisions that he claimed, in which he claimed the Supreme Court had reaffirmed Roe versus Wade, and that therefore Roe was such a super. And they actually did call it a super duper duper. <laughs> right? It's in the record of the hearing. 
uh, that therefore it was so sacred that it just couldn't be, shouldn't be overturned. The reason that senators uh, talk about things like that is because they have refined the strategy of trying to extract from nominees information about how they're going to rule on these issues. They used to just ask them, you know, how are you going to rule? And they, they don't really do that so much anymore. Then they've switched to, well, let's talk about precedent, what kind of precedent. Then this strategy is, well, if you're not going to tell me whether you're going to overrule Roe versus Wade, I'm going to tell you why I think you shouldn't. And hence uh, th this, uh, this really fake argument about uh, – and of course, the Supreme Court has only reaffirmed Roe versus Wade three times, not 38 – um, that's the kind of margin of error that we deal with in Washington and a lot of things. Uh, and actually, uh, Senator Hatch, for whom, for whom I work, he's going to be publishing an article in the Stanford Law and Policy Review this fall looking at that specific claim that Roe is a super precedent uh, and show how it – a precedent is a precedent and the same standards apply uh, across the board. That's wonderful. We'll have to check out that law review when yeah. it comes out. Yes. So finally, um, the Democratic senators have used many nominees' membership in the Federalist Society as a reason uh, why they shouldn't be confirmed. Do you recall any instances of an issue like this coming up with uh, past judicial nominees? And for the record, are you or have you ever been a member of the Federalist <laughs> Society? I, I started a Federalist Society chapter at my law school 33 years ago <laughs> before I think everyone in this studio was born. So <laughs> those, are, those are my uh, Federalist Society credentials. Um, it, the, the earlier version of this, um, and when I say earlier, we're talking like 20, 30 years ago, the controversy was about membership in country clubs, country mm -hmm. clubs that yeah. didn't have enough or didn't have any uh, women members, didn't have any, enough Jewish or black members. Uh, and, and there's two purposes for this kind of thing. One is to criticize the organization and the other is to smear the nominee. Um, it, it has become um, really focused as a strategy. And during the Neil Gorsuch, you know, hearing the, the, the mantra that you heard was that the president has outsourced this whole thing to the Federalist Society, God forbid. Here's what the Federalist Society's principles are. Um, and this is from their website. It is founded on the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom. That's in the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> that the separation of powers is central to our constitution. Just read the constitution. And that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be, uh, Marbury versus Madison. So um, if – I think as Senator Ben Sass said during the Gorsuch hearing, if any senator doesn't agree with those three principles, they ought to resign. <laughs> I mean – so, OK, you, you want to badmouth somebody by suggesting that this organization that maybe uh, – you know, normal people in the Midwest haven't heard of. And so it's like, ooh, it must be creepy or something. But when you look at, well, what do they stand for, right? Mm -hmm. But again, that tactic uh, reflects a certain view of the judiciary. Mm -hmm. And we, it always gets back to that. If, if you're supposed to be disqualified because you're a member of a particular organization, that must mean that the views you have, the personal views you have or the what that organization stands for is going to be the basis of your decisions as a judge. And I don't care what organization you're talking about. I think we ought to reject that idea of the judiciary. The idea that someone cannot take a personal opinion and set it aside, that someone cannot – uh, actually follow the oath of judicial office, which requires you to, to 
do things impartially. People are capable of doing that. I mean, if you can walk and chew gum at the same time, it is possible <laughs> to, to, in a deliberate way, when you know that you have to, uh, make those kinds of distinctions. It is only those for whom the whole world and all of existence is political, is subjective, is personal, it, everything is about power. Uh, it's only that kind of a person that would have any sort of problem with this or, or somehow find disqualifying membership in a specific organization. Somebody who's a member of the Federalist Society is no more or less qualified to be a judge than somebody who's with the ACLU as far as I'm concerned. So um, it's the convenient uh, kind of whipping boy of the moment. We are we are in full um, agreement. And we are card-carrying members. Yes, <laughs> and as a, as a follow-up, um, do you think um, – my station as the former president of the George Mason Federalist Society will give me any trouble in my eventual confirmation hearing. I hope it does because that, because that means that you're coming from good stock and you're coming from the right uh, place intellectually. And I would say uh, both of our law clerks this summer on Senator Hatch's Judiciary Committee staff are students at your alma mater, and we are very glad. Oh, wonderful. To have them. Love to hear that. Uh, well, thanks, Tom. Uh, next up, we're going to talk about blue slips, and I'd love to get your thoughts as well. So it's no surprise that President Trump has been quickly trying to fill the 100-plus vacancies on the federal courts. Many people expected his nominees would sail through the Republican-controlled Senate. But Senate Democrats have been able to bring some nominations to a standstill with a little-known practice called the blue slip. Once the White House sends a nominee over to the Senate, the Judiciary Committee handles the initial evaluation. And since 1917, so for the past 100 years, the committee has asked senators from a nominee's home state for their opinion on a blue slip of paper, hence the name blue slips, before the committee will hold a hearing, a confirmation hearing for that nominee. These blue slips recognize that home state senators may be more familiar with the nominee and have personal insights into their suitability for a judgeship. Except for a brief period in the 1960s and 70s, a negative blue slip has traditionally not been treated like a veto on a nominee. Uh, but senators have been able to use the threat of returning a negative blue slip or indefinitely withholding a blue slip to persuade the president to select their preferred nominees. So far, Senate Democrats have not been able to do that, uh, and they have not been able to influence President Trump's selection of nominees. So they're using their last bit of leverage, which is blue slips. Now that the filibuster is gone, this is all they've got. So rumor has it that home state senators have not returned blue slips for David Strauss of Minnesota, Joan Larson of Michigan, and possibly Amy Barrett of Indiana, uh, which has one Democrat and one Republican senator. So Strauss and Larson are both state Supreme Court justices who have been elected with broad margins uh, in their states, but their home state senators, including Al Franken of Minnesota and De Debbie Stabenow of Michigan, are claiming they need more time and more information about these nominees who you would think would be well known to them. Yeah, that seems very implausible um, with justices who sat on their uh, state Supreme Courts, especially with Joan Larson, who was um, recently reelected by an overwhelming uh, majority in the state of Michigan. Um, but hopefully, maybe, um, I know the former... Uh, Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, Bob Young, um, is challenging Debbie Stabenow um, for her seat. And she he's been trolling her on Twitter in the most <laughs> excellent ways. So uh, recently I saw he um, he sent her a letter that said, uh, Senator Stabenow, I can see that you and your staff are in desperate need of a constitution. So I'm sending you a pocket one. Um, I hope it was a heritage pocket constitution. Yeah, I hope it was too. Not that Cato one. <laughs> uh, so Strauss and Larson were both identified by Trump as a possible 
possible Supreme Court nominees during his campaign. So it makes sense that the Democrats are trying to thwart their lower court appointments. So what can Senator Grassley, who's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, do about these recalcitrant home state senators? So over the years, chairmen have used blue slips in different ways. Um, So he could always choose to proceed without two positive blue slips. Heck, he could even do away with the practice. It's not a formal rule of the Senate, although I have to be honest, I think that's pretty unlikely to happen. Tom, what, what's your take on the blue slip controversy? I agree with that. I mean, the Senate is a, a very tradition-oriented institution. And um, I mean, it, frankly, it's it's easy to say he should just get rid of the blue slip. Well, uh, I, I don't know any company or organization or anything that if had a, they had a 100-year tradition – with regard to an important part of their operations, that they would just trash it, you know, the next day. Uh, at the same time, as you said, uh, there has been a lot of variety in terms of how chairmen uh, have addressed that. It's important to point out that the purpose of this tradition uh, is to, especially in the last thirty or forty years, is to encourage the White House to consult with home state senators. That that's the incentive. Uh, it was it was not intended to be an absolute veto by individual senators, but it isn't. So if, if the White House uh, has consulted that, and that does not mean simply doing what the senators want them to do, but <laughs> it, if the White House has consulted, and if it is obvious that home state senators are are doing this uh, for obstruction, I know when my boss Senator Hatch was chairman of the Judiciary Committee, his standard was that if the White House had consulted in good faith. The blue slip would not be treated as an absolute veto. It would be given significant weight, but it would not be a veto. Um, and so, th- frankly, that was uh, Joe Biden's policy when he was chairman of the committee before Senator Hatch. So um, that, that's, that, that would be a completely legitimate position for Senator Grassley to take that you – know, let, let's not forget. I mean when, when Democrats got rid of the nomination filibuster in 2013, what was their big thing? They said – I mean, it was false. The, the accusation was false. But they said the reason we did it was because Republicans were taking something that had been part of our Senate process and they were abusing it. That was their, That's why they said we got to get rid of it. That's exactly what's happening today with regard to the blue slip. So um, anyway, so there are options. I mean, and as you say, it's not, it's not provided for by rule. Uh, it can be adapted to what admittedly are very different circumstances today. The, the process is, is very different than it used to be. And Grassley has also suggested that he might decide to treat blue slips for district court nominees differently from um, appeals court nominees, which I think historically senators have had a little bit more say at the district court level. That's definitely true. Um, and there's and it, it makes some intuitive sense. Uh, the A U.S. district court judge's jurisdiction is never larger than one state so that those home state senators um, represent the entire jurisdiction of that judge, whereas court of appeals judges serve in jurisdictions that have multiple states. So uh, they have been treated somewhat differently in in various ways. So I don't think that that would be uh, illegitimate in terms of uh, a way of approaching this. Again, the context that we're in is in a very politicized, almost unprecedented way, trying to use this part of what should be a normal process for much more politicized and partisan ends. So um, I think the chairman would be justified in, in taking any number of these approaches to try to address that problem. Well, with nominees uh, piling up in the Senate Judiciary Committee, we hope that Grassley figures something out soon. But thankfully, the blue slip process won't be a problem for a lower court vacancy that we expect to be coming soon. And that leads us to our next segment. 
Yes. So the Wall Street Journal recently broke the news that Judge Janice Rogers Brown of the D.C. Circuit will be retiring this summer, uh, leaving open an important and coveted judgeship. Uh, So her chambers recently confirmed that she will be straight up retiring, not taking senior status, um, which will leave the D.C. Circuit uh, a a full spot slot on the D.C. Circuit. Um, and there's no senators in D.C., so there won't be a blue slip problem there. Um, the D.C. Circuit is often called the second most important court in the country, um, right after the Supreme Court, and they handle a lot of administrative law cases, which are, are very important uh, nowadays. Uh, so we just wanted to give a little bit of a tribute to Judge Brown. She grew up in a segregated rural Alabama. Um, her parents were sharecroppers. She worked her way through law school as a single mother, and then she became the first African-American to sit on the California Supreme Court. And when George uh, Bush nominated her to the D.C. Circuit, she faced a lot of scathing opposition um, from the Senate Democrats who thought she was radical because she, uh, wait for it, uh, loved liberty and was willing to follow the Constitution. Now, Tom, your boss was the chairman when when she was nominated. Is that correct? Uh, no, actually, uh, Senator Specter was. Senator Hatch okay. had his second period as chairman in 2003-04, and I think uh, Judge Brown was appointed in 2005. But you were around at that time. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Any any insights? Well, about- she, she her nomination was part of about a three-year really serious conflict uh, um, as to the confirmation process. That was the first time that the Senate that senators had used filibusters to defeat majority supported nominees nominees who would be confirmed uh, if uh, if only a vote would take place and that was a deliberate strategy in fact uh, just uh, I literally walked here to the studio off the Senate floor when Senator Hatch, where Senator Hatch was giving a speech about this confirmation obstruction and he noted that this goes back to 2001 in a very deliberate organized strategy to begin changing the confirmation ground rules and they they definitely began with this the conflict over the filibuster. Judge Brown's nomination was initially caught up in that, and thankfully, uh, after there was an accommodation made in two thousand five that allowed some nominees uh, to be confirmed, including hers. Uh, and it was it was a real victory. I mean, it, you know the the, the symbolic um, uh, the symbolism of. Liberal Democrats who are constantly talking about diversity and race and gender, opposing the first black woman, you know, to, to be appointed to this court, uh, wasn't lost on anybody. Uh, but she has been a um, a very important member of that court, and um, and it does open up a seat for uh, for President Trump to nominate someone. Yeah, so we had the pleasure of meeting Judge Brown when she gave our uh, Distinguished Joseph Story Lecture, um, which you can find on Heritage.org. Uh, and she's one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, she is a conservative powerhouse. She's very, very quiet in person. Some, you know, a lot of people even would describe her as shy, but her opinions are not shy at all. They are surprisingly feisty. Um and the National Law Journal had a great piece showcasing um, a couple of her her best uh, witty lines. So I just wanted to go through a couple of them. So a while ago, in a concurring opinion um, about lack of oversight of the U.S. drone program, um, actually, this one was really recently, uh, she wrote, congressional oversight is a joke and a bad one at that. Um, and then in a government, in a case about the government um, and a tax refund 
um, case, the government's arguments were, quote, so wrong, Stevie Wonder could see the flaw from a phone booth in Chicago. Um, So we're sure going to miss her wise and witty opinions. Um, There's already been some replacement names uh, floating around. Um, They're all administrative law experts. So we're hearing that Rachel Brand, the current associate attorney general, uh, Kate Todd, who heads up the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Litigation Center, and Naomi Rao, the newly confirmed head of OIRA and my former law professor, um, all seem to be floating around as and, possible And contenders. a former Hatch staffer. <laughs> yes. That's right. the record reflect. Yes. Uh, I think I've also heard uh, rumors of Deputy White House Counsel Greg Katz's possibly being in the mix as well. Um, so all great names, and I think any of them would be a fantastic pick to uh, to replace the, uh, the great Janice Rogers-Brown. So we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Senate Confirmation Edition, where we're going to try to stump our guest, Tom Jipping. Are you ready? As ready as I can be. <laughs> first question. Who was the first president to have a Supreme Court nominee rejected by the Senate? George Washington. That is correct. He nominated John Rutledge to be Chief Justice in 1795. This was after Rutledge had previously served as an associate justice, and he left the court, I believe, because he didn't like the practice of riding circuit, and he went (laughs) to be on a court in South Carolina. Of course, those were the days when a president would nominate somebody to the Supreme Court of the United States, and they would say no. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it was a different time, that's for sure. Uh, But the, the Senate rejected his nomination by a vote of 10 to 14, likely due to his vocal opposition to the Jay Treaty. Okay, question two. Which chief justice was first rejected by the Senate for an associate justice uh, post? I'll give you a hint. He has been charged with starting the Civil War. Roger Taney. Exactly. Uh, Chief Justice Roger Taney, um, author of the infamous Dred Scott decision, uh, he was nominated by Andrew Jackson in 1835, but the Senate voted to postpone his nomination indefinitely. Um, After the election that year, Senate leadership changed and he was confirmed as Chief Justice. Question three. Which president made nine nominations to two Supreme Court vacancies and ultimately only succeeded in filling one vacancy? Boy, that that one I do not know. So it's John Tyler. He had been expelled from the Whig Party and lacking support in Congress, he was unable to fill one seat that ultimately sat open for 831 days. So the longest vacancy in history. And it took 437 days and six nominations to fill the other vacancy. So he didn't have very much luck with the Supreme Court. Okay, uh, the last question. Which justice was confirmed by the narrowest margin? He was confirmed by just one vote, 24 to 23. I'll give you a hint. He was a senator from Ohio, um, first nominated to the court by Rutherford B. Hayes and renominated by James Garfield later that year. Boy, I'll have to pass on that one too. It's it's a, a, that's a hard it's one. It's a tough one. So it was Stanley Matthews uh, and he was known for authoring the Yikwo decision, uh, which is a decision striking down a San Francisco ordinance that was used to exclude Chinese immigrants um, from the laundry business in the 1880s. That Justice Matthews, everybody knows that one, right? <laughs> <laughs> Almost as many people as have heard of John Tyler. You know? yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I think you did a great job, and thanks to our guest, uh, Tom Jipping, for joining us. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Tiffany H. Bates and at E.H. Slattery. 